You're listening to the Hunt the High Country podcast. Welcome back to the Hunt the High Country podcast. This is Brad Carter with AltitudeOutdoors.com. And you guessed it, we're talking mule deer again today. Uh, This is an episode that I've been anticipating for quite a while with Gary Fralick, the Wyoming Game and Fish biologist out of Thane, Wyoming. And even though he's local to us, I believe Gary has the most knowledge about uh, migrating mule deer. Uh, I'd put him up against pretty much anybody. So Gary's dedicated uh, decades to understanding big game populations in the West and uh, specifically some really cool studies on these deer. And, and he'll go into detail on, on some of that. But, you know, in the meantime, yesterday, uh, Wyoming Game and Fish uh, draw results came out. So I think a lot of us were anxiously kind of waiting for those to see if we had an elk or a deer or a or an antelope tag coming our way for the fall. And I hope that you guys had good luck in the draws and that you're planning for a successful fall despite all the uncertainty and chaos in the world. Um, Guys, our goal here at Altitude Outdoors is to bring you great gear and content, and this podcast is one way that we do that. So um, without further ado, let's jump into this one. I sit down with uh, Gary Fralick and uh, my co-host Billy Kennington, for this episode and we'll talk mule deer thanks for being here and i hope you enjoy this one it's an honor and a privilege to welcome mr gary fralick to the podcast thank you billy and and brad i'm I'm absolutely delighted to be here we've talked about this for for a time and uh it's glad uh, i'm glad to uh to uh uh, make it be happening because we're uh, there's a lot of good great information out there on this iconic mule deer herd, and I'm going to be glad to, to share it with uh, you and your listeners. Perfect. So just to give a little background on Gary, for those of you that don't know, Gary is currently the Wyoming Game and Fish Department's South Jackson wildlife biologist. Um, Gary began his career in 1986 and was transferred to Star Valley in 1993. Uh, through a concerted effort to collect data and openly share it with the public and other constituents for decades, Gary has become both well-known and well-respected by both sportsmen and wildlife professionals alike. Uh, another interesting accomplishment from Gary's bio, um, Gary has forged key relationships with wildlife researchers from both the University of Wyoming and Montana State to initiate landmark research on the Wyoming range mule deer, sub- sublet moose, and the Palisades mountain goat herd. Gary has played a key role in not only conceptualizing the studies, but also securing necessary funding and support by involving private landowners, local politicians, the media, and even local youth in wildlife captures. So I hope that that was accurate, Gary. Is there anything that you would like to (laughs) add to that? Uh, Thank you, Billy. I think uh, that describes it uh, uh, very well and uh, just really pleased to have this opportunity and uh, uh, thanks again. So uh, yeah, I'd like to uh, to go ahead and start into the uh, the presentation uh, when you're ready to do that. And uh, thank you for that kind introduction. 
Perfect. Well, let's start with the history of the Wyoming range herd. And if you want to touch on, you know, hunt areas, some of the population objectives and also hunt seasons, that'd be great, Gary. Sure. Yeah. Th thanks, Billy. And I think I've always been uh, tried to uh, um, be one to, to kind of look at the past. And, and uh, I think in understanding the past, I think in, uh, one can grasp a little bit better the un and understand uh, the future and the present as well. And uh, the Wyoming range herd has quite a, uh, a historical background to it. Uh, many of your listeners may know that the Wyoming range, uh, the deer herd itself encompasses uh, uh, most of West Central Wyoming. Um, and going back into the 1980s, actually the late 1970s, the Wyoming range herd uh, was not what we know of it is today. Uh, prior to 1980, the, uh, what, uh, the Wyoming range, today's Wyoming range, it was composed of, of three hut areas or, or mini herd units, if you will. Uh, 143 was in uh, the sublet and uh, West Green River was uh, uh, what we know of as 134, 135. And then uh, the Lincoln herd uh, was uh, Star Valley and Grays River. And so 19, in the early 1980s, the department uh, started looking at collaring data. Uh, they were engaged in extensive uh, neck banding collaring programs uh, along the East Slope and Wyoming Range. In the 1980s, the department added uh, what we call the Carter Wings to that area north of I-80. And uh, uh, at that time, uh, the population objective was, was uh, increased from uh, right about 30,000 to 38,000. So uh, that's where we came up with 38,000 years or our population objective through the 1980s and into the early portion of the 1990s. Now, what the management program that, that came along uh, with the designation in the, in the 1980s was special management. And what special management is to the Game and Fish Department is where we try as deer managers attempted for a postseason buck ratio of 30 to 45 bucks uh, per 100 does in the postseason population. And uh, with this uh, type of management program and, and the notoriety and, and the interest that uh, has historically been generated with the Wyoming Range Herd, uh, we felt uh, the department, of course, the, the Game and Fish Commissions uh, through time, and felt that the the special management designation was totally appropriate for this uh, this population. So, in the Wyoming range, we have what we call the the uh, the, the hunt areas uh, in the northern portion of the herd unit and, and the southern hunt areas, which are uh, managed by the Green River region of hunt areas one thirty four and one thirty five. And those two areas historically have opened on October first, whereas the northern areas. 143, 144, 145, the uh, slope of the Wyoming Range, the Grays River, and of course the, the Salt River, Star Valley area, historically uh, had opening dates in September. And, uh, and those September dates were typically September 20th. And so uh, as public interest uh, continued to increase in this deer herd and, and some of the uh, concerns the public had was, you know, hunters jumping around from opening dates because, you know, back in the, uh, the 1990s, we had three opening dates, so September 10th, uh, September 20th, and October 1st, with September 10th 
openers primarily in the Hoback, which was part of the sublet herd. And so in 1997, the Game and Fish Commission evaluated those multiple opening dates and in order to address uh, concerns relative to hunters moving from different hunting areas and opening dates, uh, in 1997, they made the change to a standardized opening date for the high country areas, which encompass, I think, 16 hunt areas in the Wyoming range and the sublet deer herds, uh, and that opening date now was September 15th. So that uh, that's kind of some of the background of, of why we have a September opener in the northern areas and October 1st uh, opener in the southern areas. And uh, there are issues that are unique to each of those areas uh, that we feel uh, warrant the, the two opening dates. And uh, we believe uh, that they've been fairly successful in addressing the, the population dynamics of the population and uh, as well as uh, uh, addressing some of the concerns that the public have have raised over the last 15 to 20 years. And so uh, that's kind of where we're at um, as far as those basic herd management uh, criteria that the deer managers use to to try to manage this iconic deer population. Now there are a couple of other uh, issues that that I believe, uh, uh, and many others do as well. Uh, my colleagues in the Game and Fish Department, certainly the Game and Fish Commission and, and the department, have been really keen on uh, comments uh, and concerns raised by the public. And uh, several noteworthy occurrences occurred over the last 20 years. Uh, and and uh, to me, probably the watershed moment, and certainly in my career as, a, as one of the deer managers in the Wyoming Range Herd, was the initiation of the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Initiative. Uh, the M Wyoming Range Mule Deer Initiative was, was tailored along the lines of the North American Mule Deer Management Plan that was established in 2004. So that's the template for the Wyoming Range Deer Management Program. And in 2007, uh, the Game and Fish Commission uh, directed the department to form a Wyoming Mule Deer Working Group. And so in 2007, our working group was convened. And uh, uh, shortly thereafter, we had our first meeting in the Wyoming range uh, to talk about how we were going to address uh, some of the public sentiment and concerns they had over deer management in general, and specifically uh, deer management focused on the Wyoming range herd. And so the Game and Fish Commission asked the department to have a closer look at that, and that's exactly what we did. And so in, in 2010, uh, the deer managers of the Wyoming range took to the public, the uh, first time ever in the history of the agency, a uh, herd unit review uh, by the public of a big game population. And of course, that was in Wyoming Range Herd in 2010. We held public meetings uh, for two years, 2010 and 2011, uh, in communities in western Wyoming, Green River, Kimmer, uh, Afton, uh, and Big Piney. And so those four locations, we invited the public to come out on Wyoming Range deer management, and that's exactly what they did. And uh, as a result of that, uh, we were able to uh, share all the data sets, uh, what I consider, and I've called on occasion, a treasure trove of data uh, that we've been collecting in the Wyoming range since uh, the 1980s. And we were able to share that with the public and, and hopefully gave them 
uh, an understanding of some of the complexities involved in managing such a large deer population. And uh, after our 2011 public meetings, and, and uh, we generated the, the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Management Plan. And uh, that plan is, uh, is still uh, the template which, uh, which game managers, deer manager, managers in the Wyoming Range uh, use as a template uh, to govern our, our management of this, of this deer herd. And so um, a lot of things have changed over the last 25 to 30 years undoubtedly, and, uh, uh, but we s still think that uh, based on some of the comments that we received over the last 15 to 20 years, more recently, up until the 2017 winter, that uh, uh, we believe we had a, a pretty successful deer management program uh, in the Wyoming range. And we think also that uh, because of the vast amount of data we've been able to collect and share with the public as well, that uh, uh, based on on hunter satisfaction, hunter sentiment that, that uh, you know, barring uh, severe winters, obviously, uh, we have a pretty, uh, pretty successful and supportive public um, for the most part. And so there are a number of things that, that we believe are important uh, in the management of the herd. Uh, my predecessors uh, started a, a process in, in, uh, in the 1980s uh, where whereby we would uh, collect not only preseason and, and uh, excuse me postseason uh, buck doe ratios, doe fawn ratios, which are a, a metric that we use uh, to bring together our management approach and, and give us uh, that sort of information to share with the public on on those sort of buck doe ratios that are important to the hunting public for various reasons. Many people come to this area to hunt trophy class bucks. Uh, gives us an index on winter severity because we see some of the effects of uh, winter severity over time uh, based on on those buck doe ratios and of course with doe fawn ratios as well the productivity of the herd and, and so what we've seen uh, over the years is uh, some of the graphs that we've generated with population the annual population dynamic uh, as well as uh, winter severity is that I mean, we believe you know, winter severity is is a is a major dictator of uh, the impacts of, of the annual population dynamic in the Wyoming range. We believe, and the data clearly points that out, that about every three years, on average, uh, this population uh, in West Central Wyoming, Southwest Wyoming, uh, is subject to uh, uh, an above normal or severe winter mortality event, and uh, the cyclic nature, I think, is one of the one of the points that we try to drive home to the public uh, that this population is a classic example of the cyclic nature of Western Wyoming mule deer populations, and, and undoubtedly some mule deer populations in other parts of the Intermountain West, uh, based on uh, winter severity. And so that is, is clearly evident. Uh, we did have a, a, a spell uh, of five years running uh, between 2011 and the 2017 winter where we were able to sustain population growth. And, and of course, you know, that, uh, that five-year run is uh, uh, basically unprecedented. And uh, uh, because uh, in the preceding 25 years or more, uh, a drop in the population uh, or a slowing of the population for sure about every three years. And so typically the fawns uh, are the age class that is 
uh, have most heavily impacted. And so you can, I think your listeners can appreciate the, uh, the effects of, uh, of winter severity on fawns and, and the ability of a population increase. Because, you know, I think we all know that populations increase when survival exceeds mortality. And uh, uh, that typically does occur in, in most deer populations and even in the Wyoming range. But uh, uh, those successive years when we see uh, 30% to uh, 60% of fawn mortality uh, can dampen the ability of the population increase. Of course, in uh, our estimates by our accounting in 2007, we lost almost a full age cohort. That certainly is something that we're, we're dealing with uh, to some degree now. Uh, we've had uh, two to three years of, of reasonably high overwinter survival, uh, except on uh, on the southern winter range. That got hit in 2019 by another fairly substantial winter event that, that killed uh, uh, quite a few deer as well. So, but uh, uh, that's the differences in the winter ranges. Uh, they vary quite markedly in in, uh, in winter severity. And uh, the Labarge deer, uh, big piney Labarge population, uh, has a history of fairly high overwinter survival, and that's the population. Uh, that subpopulation is what has been able to sustain uh, the Wyoming range herd uh, through those those really tough years. Uh, when uh, when the southern herd portion of the herd experiences a tough winter, and so that's also reflected in in, in hunter satisfaction, and uh, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I think Billy and I were were chatting uh, some time ago that that hunter satisfaction mimics and, and follows uh, winter severity, and, uh, and it's true. And uh, if you look at some of the the high ratings that uh, we've had in the Wyoming range. Uh, and hunter satisfaction is defined as a hunter indicating uh, that they have a uh, very satisfied or, or satisfied hunt. And, uh, you know, up until the 2017 winter, we were recording satisfaction percentages approaching 80% in the Grays River, 144, and in Salt so, And then that winter hit, and, of course, it, it fell off. And, and by the way, uh, uh, we were certainly have all of this data to share with your listeners if uh, if they're willing to contact uh, uh, Billy or Brad or even myself, we can, we can send you the data sets that we're basing all of this on. And so I think I think that's a, a key component for, for game managers. Uh, we want to certainly be sure of uh, that we're doing uh, monitoring this population effectively, which we have been doing uh, for well over 30 years. And I think that is that is a, a key component to uh, to managing the deer herd. I will say that um, one of the things that has come up over time has been our population estimates and how we derive those. And uh, in, in 2018, January 2018, we we assembled uh, all of the deer managers and, and actually people from around the state who were interested in help us conduct the first ever uh, full blown. Cytability uh, or animal abundance survey, and so what we did is uh, we flew the entire Wyoming range deer herd, all the winter ranges, and, and attempted to count uh, every deer uh, that we saw. We flew quarter mile transects. It took us uh, over two weeks to fly the population. Uh, we burned uh, about 110 hours of helicopter flight time. We uh, 
spent quite a bit of money doing that, over $130,000, but we came up with the, uh, the first ever uh, population estimate was based on the number of deer uh, that we were able to count. And so uh, uh, we based that on uh, some of our population model estimates. And, and uh, after that survey, we physically counted uh, almost 26,000 deer uh, in the Wyoming range. And it, to me, that's noteworthy because that's just uh, a year on from uh, the tough winter of 2017. So uh, our population estimates were right on up until that point. We were estimating almost 40,000 deer uh, before the bad winter. And uh, and then after the, the winter hit, our postseason estimates were, were running right at uh, 28 to 30,000 deer. And so uh, the Citability Survey confirmed our, our population estimates and and of course, that's always a good thing, and uh, we were able to share that with the public. Now, uh, uh, what's complicated population growth uh, since 2017, uh, as I said a moment ago, was the uh, the tough winter uh, observed in 2019 uh, on the southern winter ranges. And, and we know now that the southern winter ranges from Cokeville to Evanston support about 60% of the Wyoming range deer herd. And the remaining 40% uh, are counted on the large Big Piney winter ranges. There's a few deer that, that spend the winter in, in the ryegrass around Daniel and, of course, in the Star Valley area. So 40% of the population uh, is composed of the northern hunt areas, 143, uh, 144, and 145. And then, of course, the 60% uh, of the population off the southern winter ranges. That's been uh, what our estimates have been uh, approximate uh, for the last 30 years or more. And so uh, to be able to, to uh, delineate that with an actual animal abundance survey uh, was, uh, was noteworthy to us for sure. You said the first one was conducted in January 2018, correct? That's correct, yep. And has that been something that was that's done on an annual basis now, or is it? Uh, that's a great question. No, it, it, we... we uh, uh, I should back up is, is the Wyoming range herd is one of the mule deer initiative herds in the state. And I think there are six or seven other herds. And so what we've been trying to do uh, as an agency is, is uh, conduct this uh, animal abundance survey in each of the uh, mule deer initiative herds. And so uh, the next closest population uh, survey or census that we'll do using a a full-blown animal abundance or sightability survey will be in the sublet herd, which is our sister herd to the east. And it's also a very large deer population and encompasses uh, uh, largely the Green River Basin from Rock Springs all the way to Jackson. So that'll be next in the docket. Um, we're not sure uh, when we're going to fly the Wyoming range again, but uh, uh, the ideally we, we try to fly these populations about every five years, depending on certainly on in basically funding because it's as you can see it's a very expensive program oh, and yeah. So, uh, um, yeah that's the that's what uh, it'll be a few more years till we fly the wyoming range again gotcha so i want to ask you a couple questions while we're talking about sort of winter mortality buck to doe ratios and things like that so when we talk about fawn recruitment or fawn mortality what's sort of the tipping point like how many fawns do we have to get through um the winter to see this herd grow or stay stable without losing numbers. Right. You know, and, and that's really something that, uh, you know, that obviously I think you and your listeners know that we have no, um, no control over. Um, but 
typically what we see is is based on our change in ratio surveys. And, and when our change in ratio surveys estimate uh, winter fawn mortality at less than uh, 30%, uh, we, we think we're, we're on the population increase. And so uh, we anticipate uh, some growth uh, this year, this next year, uh, based on uh, fawn survival, uh, the winter of 19 to uh, 20. And, uh, and so I think that's been a good thing. I think the fawn recruitment is, is central to this whole idea of population growth. And uh, uh, I think if we can, we can observe uh, uh, successive years of high overwinter survival, four to five years, I think uh, we'll be, you know, approaching that population objective of, of 40,000 deer um, in, the, in the coming years. But you know, overwinter survival is really what's governing dynamic of, of this deer population. In fact, most Western uh, deer populations that are subject to, uh, to winter mortality. Some of the things that, that we've noted, um, another watershed moment, to me, and I think to, to many of the, the, the deer managers in the Wyoming range, uh, has been a result of the Mule Deer Initiative. And of course, one of, the, one of the components of the Mule Deer Initiative, there were six components that, uh, that we derived based all on public comment and input. And those are population management, habitat management, uh, law enforcement, research, predator control and public outreach. I think the most noteworthy perhaps uh, of those has been the research component uh, with the initiation of the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Project in uh, 2013. Uh, Dr. Kevin Monteith, the University of Wyoming, arrived in the state in 2011 and uh, has been a key component with the university and the Wyoming Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. And, and Dr. Monteith is spearheading uh, the Wyoming Range uh, work uh, now in its seventh year. And so uh, uh, we initiated uh, a key component of that study in 2015 when we started uh, radio calling newborn farms because uh, of, of all of the aspects of deer management in this herd, we really did not have an understanding of the survival and mortality of newborn fawns, at least fawns through their first six months of life. Right. So we set out, we set out to, to radio call our newborn fawns, and uh, that's exactly what we're, uh, we're doing right now. Uh, Dr. Monteith and his crew are on, uh, in western Wyoming in the deer herd, and uh, as those are having their fawns, uh, we're trying to capture and, and radio collar those fawns to, to really, uh, again, add another data point to the factors that are contributing to fawn survival uh, and, and or mortality. Gotcha. So what have you, what's kind of the biggest understanding you've gained thus far, I guess, in five years of fun collaring? What's, what's something that you think, you know, wasn't understood well before? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it, it certainly shed a lot of light on, on, on the biology and the life of a newborn fawn. And uh, I think uh, Dr. Monteith and his associates have, have done a great job of, of monitoring those fawns and trying to get in on any mortality as quickly as possible. And some of the substantial factors that are affecting fawn survival uh, that uh, certainly I, for one, didn't have a good understanding of was uh, certainly predation is a key component of that, uh, primarily uh, coyote predation, 
Also, we, we documented uh, a disease called adenovirus that had a substantial impact on the population as well as newborn fawns in 2015. Uh, that adenovirus is a hemorrhagic disease, and uh, uh, we were finding not only a radio-collared animals dying from adenovirus, but uh, uh, many uncollared animals as well. In fact, in my own experience, uh, during uh, 2015, I was picking up uh, healthy-looking fawns uh, in the Star Valley area in October that uh, were very healthy-looking, no evidence of, of trauma, uh, attack, uh, injury, or anything like that. And we were able to uh, send those uh, carcasses to our state vet lab in, in Laramie. And uh, once they did initiate the necropsy, uh, uh, they found uh, uh, their lungs and their intestines full of blood and fluid. And uh, uh, from the hemorrhagic uh, response uh, uh, that this disease causes. And so... Uh, uh, certainly, hemor or, uh, adenovirus was was a disease that I don't don't think we had a really good understanding and could grasp the, the impacts of. Several other factors that contributed to uh, uh, that affect not only fawn uh, survival but uh, certainly adult survival as well. And I think most of us know having a good understanding of these, and and, uh, and so uh, uh, accidents are another one. Newborn fawns. Uh, dying from being tangled in, in sagebrush, accidental injuries. Um, we have many fawns, especially after severe winters, um, that are either stillborn or die shortly after birth. We saw that uh, in high evidence. Let's see, it would have been 2017 after that winter. So uh, June, uh, May and June of 2017, many of the fawns that were uh, that we documented uh, in the uterus as as fetuses uh, uh, were either stillborn or, or died shortly thereafter. And that was just because the doe was in, in such poor condition that she was unable to sustain a viable fetus after severe winter events like that. So, uh, you know, there we have stillborn and uh, dying shortly thereafter. Um, we had, you know, it's, it's amazing, I think, uh, um, how uh, newborn young ungulates can pass or die. And, and uh, we had, for example, one, one doe that crossed the Smith's Fork in high water uh, several years ago with her twins, and both of her twins died uh, by drowning. And so uh, those sorts of conditions are, are a big deal, obviously, that we sometimes can't document without the luxury of collared animals. Um, most certainly, uh, vehicle collisions are, are a big impact, not necessarily to, to our radio collar deer, but certainly uh, to the population as a whole. And uh, one of the things that we're going to try and do and will do is, is remedy that with uh, a highway fence and uh, seven to eight structures uh, that will, I think, be in, uh, construction initiated in 2021. And of course, that area that will be uh, fenced with uh, uh, migration movement structures Underneath the highway is that area 180, highway 189 uh, between uh, Labarge and Big Piney. That has been uh, a sore point in in the uh, in the management of the Wyoming range herd for many, many, many years. Hundreds and thousands and thousands of mule deer have died on that highway over the last 50, 60 years or more. And uh, finally, now uh, through the through the support of our many partners, YDOT. Uh, certainly the Game and Fish Commission, many of our 
partners and supporters and contributors with charitable foundations, uh, Newly Fanatics, for example, Newly Fanatics Foundation, non-government organizations and, and individuals, you know, who buy license plates with the mule their buck on it. Uh, that money is going to go to uh, to the aid of uh, building crossing structures and, and fencing highways to uh, minimize the uh, the annual mortality uh, of mule deer and, and vehicle collisions. Of course, you know, I think all of us know it's not just mule deer, uh, but by their nature, one of the questions that Bill and I have discussed uh, on occasion is you know, what makes mule deer so uh, so vulnerable. And, and I think some of it is um, to these sorts of impacts to their environment. And, and uh, in my humble view, I think one of the one of the factors that makes mule deer so vulnerable is they tend to be long distance migrators. And so and and when they move long distances or even moderate distances, you know, they're subject to a wide range of different environmental conditions. Um, development, uh, fences, highways, uh, you know, different sorts of, of factors that, that play a role in their, in their annual life cycle. You don't see, we don't see that so much with elk, at least in western Wyoming, you know, because of the luxury of, of migrating on national forest. But mule deer in western Wyoming, in these two deer populations, the Wyoming range and sublet, uh, spend a great deal of time migrating across roadways, uh, for example, and that uh, that makes them vulnerable to the vehicle collision. And so with the support, as I just described, of our many partners and contributors, uh, and especially YDOT, this construction project uh, kicked off in 2021, and we're finally uh, going to, I think, abate the annual mortality of the Wyoming range and the older population, especially the Grays River segment, that spends the winter in, in along Big Piney La Barge and Highway 189. And so, you know, many people have expressed, you know, a, a sense of tragedy, um, for lack of a better term, in, in that uh, a mule deer will, will survive a, a western Wyoming winter only to uh, to die at, uh, on a highway or a roadway uh, with a vehicle collision. And uh, and so we're going to, uh, to address that, uh, as I said, with... Uh, with the project uh, along 189, I think it's, uh, it's going to be close to 13 miles that will be fenced, um, and as I said, seven uh, to eight structures that will allow the passage of, of uh, all big game animals and livestock as well. Just talking about vulnerability, we've already addressed the you know the winter mortality is a big issue. Um, one thing that I see online a lot is you know feeding programs and those kind of things. Will, will you just discuss the biology of mule deer in relation to feeding and and feeding programs? Because I think that's a lot of, of some things what hunters, sports people don't understand. Sure. I think uh, mule deer feeding has, has been a, a point of contention uh, for a very long time. I think probably since, you know, uh, many of the uh, wildlife agencies came into into uh, in the place, you know, which is a long time. Uh, with mule deer, they're just a, a total different beast biologically. And uh, I'll make uh, try to make a comparison to some degree with with uh, them and elk. You know, where elk is a much larger animal, uh, their stomach or rumen capacity is much larger than a mule deer, and so uh, an animal as large as an elk has the capability 
of surviving uh, in general terms over a, a much longer length of time on on relatively poor quality forage, whereas a mule deer is a much smaller animal, its human capacity is much smaller. And so to sustain a mule deer uh, effectively, uh, they need to find food that is uh, palatable, easily digestible, and uh, and highly nutritional. Whereas uh, elk, as I just described, they they can subsist on on generally poor quality forage uh, because of their larger capacity of the rumen. Mule deer cannot. And so there was a substantial call for, for the department to initiate a deer feeding program uh, during the winter of 17. And, and several reasons why the department go down didn't go down that road. And, and, and I think many of uh, many deer managers throughout the West have the, the same concern is is the prevalence of, of disease and uh, uh, concentrating animals, uh, and this undoubtedly is, you know is a contentious issue, and I, and I and I can appreciate that with with those who are uh, in support of a deer feeding program, but but it just you know really concerns me to concentrate uh, a deer herd of this importance uh, in in an environment where uh, the potential transmission of of adenovirus and now chronic wasting disease, which surely uh, inc- would likely occur. Um, and those diseases are passed through body fluids, urine, feces, uh, saliva, uh, any of the body fluids. Um, and so um, we saw some of that occur on some of the private deer feed grounds that have persisted uh, for a long time in, in places like Star Valley, you know, where, where, where folks were concentrating 50 to 60 deer in an area not much larger than 20 yards. And so, you know, that feed was being placed in, uh, on type of uh, waste material, urine and feces. And, and uh, you know, it, it didn't take long uh, for some of those deer to perish and uh, uh, for one reason or another, either malnutrition, just because they weren't able uh, to consume enough food because of the high level of competition. You know, those adult does are pretty... They're pretty nasty, you know, when uh, when those little fawns try to get in on them, you know, they'll kick them and, and uh, those little fawns and other subdominant individuals uh, get very little uh, to nothing to eat. And so my own opinion, you know, professional opinion, I guess, is in, based on the data is that I think it would be a, a, a major miscalculation to, to subject the Wyoming range herd uh, to a, a deer feeding program. Um, just because, uh, in my view, uh, of the uh, potential for disease transmission, which which undoubtedly be devastating with adenovirus, chronic waste disease, and and other diseases uh, that uh, come along with uh, highly concentrated uh, conditions for animals. Um, you know, there's also some cost estimates involved. I mean, you know, to to lay out a, a deer feeding program over an extensive winter range for like from perhaps Cokeville all the way to Evanston, you imagine the cost of that and, and what we would suffer as an agency in not being able to conduct perhaps research or animal abundance surveys. And I know the public offered their help in doing that, but um, it's, uh, it's still uh, quite, a, quite a chore to, to pull uh, a feeding program together. And, uh, and as I just described, uh, the extent of the Wyoming range herd uh, from Star Valley to Evanston and from Big Piney, LaBarge, Daniel, all the way to 
uh, Kimmer and beyond, Opal. I mean, it's uh, quite a chore. And, uh, um, and, and those are some of the fundamental reasons why I think the agency has been, been reluctant to, to enter into a full-blown deer feeding program. I know it's, it's certainly the deer management, deer managers had serious concerns for it. And, uh, and, uh, and I think once we, we've seen some of the disease components and the potential for that, now that we have, have found chronic wasting disease in Pinedale, uh, Star Valley in 2016, uh, a buck deer was killed by a vehicle in Grand Teton National Park last winter, tested positive. And then more recently, a uh, uh, buck deer was harvested uh, on the Grayback Ridge, uh, which is uh, the boundary line between the Wyoming Range and the Sublet Herd, regions G and H, that tested positive yeah. for CWD and uh, just this past hunting season. So I, I think what, what I would like to do is, is stress the importance to your listeners that uh, the potential for disease transmission is real and likely, and uh, the impacts would be would be devastating. And I think uh, we have enough uh, issues uh, affecting deer management and this population, and I think to add a component associated with concentrating hundreds, if not thousands, of animals on feed grounds and subject them to the potential of an adenovirus breakout um, or uh, CWD transmission um, is something that I think we would uh, regret. I know I would. Gotcha. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, we're on the topic of CWD, Gary. We So my brother and I hunted Colorado um, with some buddies two hunting seasons ago. And, you know, CWD is a lot more prevalent over there, at least, you know, as far as they know. And, uh, you know, every deer harvested is subject to testing and some things like that. What do you see happening here in Wyoming in regards to CWD? Will we see more, more testing opportunities? Will that be something that's mandatory for hunters? Or what do you, what do you foresee on that end? Yeah, I... You know that uh, the mandatory testing is something that is going to have to uh, uh, come from our Game and Fish Commission. Uh, right now, I think we have a fairly, uh, really robust testing program. Anybody who wants their animal tested can can in fact get it tested. And uh, you know, we we set up check stations um, uh, throughout Western Wyoming. There's that opportunity. There's a telephone call, uh, which many people have called me. Um, and uh, asked for their deer to be tested. And we, as deer manager, would be uh, very accommodating to to pull lymph nodes from um, any big game harvested. You know, not just mule deer, but uh, white-tailed deer, elk, moose, and uh, and test that animal for them. So, uh, I think I think our program is robust. I think uh, one of the things uh, that I see uh, manning the Gray's River Check Station is the rules and regulations in adjacent states or for out-of-state hunters, for example, with the prohibitions of bringing the spinal column and, of course, the brain uh, leaving Wyoming, which is also against the law. Uh, we don't to, to see much in the way of, um, as much as I did, say, 15, 20 years ago, uh, more, uh, more the skulls, uh, just the skull and the antlers, uh, that uh, come through my check station and, and everything else is left in the back country. So, mm -hmm. but be that as it may, uh, I still don't want to uh, 
give anybody the impression that um, we or that we're downplaying testing. We would be uh, uh, we would go out of our way to ensure that an animal is tested if possible. Uh, should the uh, the hunter wish to have that animal uh, lymph node sent into the lab uh, to determine. And for those that uh, you know that are listening in and interested in that, is there of these animals that you tested, were they symptomatic or what sort of symptoms would hunters be looking for? For the deer uh, that was found in tw the winter of 2016 here in Star Valley, that deer was in, in poor shape and, and it, I believe it had already expired. And so it was picked up and sent to the lab and, and I think it was a doe and it was tested positive. Uh, the buck that from what I could tell uh, of course, I just checked the uh, the cape uh, and and the head and antlers, and you know the hunter said it was in good shape, and and there's no reason to think that 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 particular deer was in poor shape or even symptomatic. It seemed to be uh, robust and in good health, uh, but it would eventually perish for sure. Um, the information I'm going to relay to you is just uh, information that's been passed on to me by by hunters who have been in other parts of the state uh, where they've seen uh, deer that, that look to be symptomatic. And, and uh, a lot of times, uh, I guess, and sometimes those deer uh, may not even be passed or, or not be harvested, they'd be just passed over. Um, but there are some areas in Wyoming where the CW pre prevalence rate is, is fairly high. And so uh, um, in, in areas around Douglas and in the southeast corner of the state, I think there are some areas uh, that are depicted on our CWD uh, map that uh, can show some uh, fairly substantial prevalence rates. So we're we're going to continue to monitor as best as we can um, uh, through harvest checks, testing animals when we have the opportunity, or the hunter is interested in that sort of data, and a fairly quick turnaround once the the lymph node or nodes are sent to the lab until the hunter's notified. So uh, we just ask people uh, that, you know, they, uh, they don't uh, or recommend, uh, we recommend that, you know, you don't eat your deer or any portion of it until you get your test results back. And uh, gotcha. um, that's, that's the road we're going down. It's the new normal and uh, something that uh, we've been fairly immune from to some degree in, in this part of the state. Well, uh, while CWD has been progressing westward over the last uh, 15 years. Right. We talked about your site ability survey just in 2018. Um, will you, just to backtrack a little bit, will you explain to the listeners kind of the process of completing that? Oh, um, sure. So, yeah. so that we can kind of understand what was done there. Um, yeah. And so that we can, you know, so the listeners understand, you know, where those numbers come from. Yeah, it's a it, so it's a it's a sightability survey, and, and I know that can conjure up, you know, some different interpretations. But uh, and and I like to call it an animal abundance survey, and so it's a systematic survey uh, conducted from from a helicopter. And in, in that particular uh, instance, uh, uh, we used two helicopters because the herd is immense. It runs the north boundary and. Uh, the stake of the canyon on the north and, and the south boundary is, uh, is I-80. And so uh, uh, it's quite a substantial piece of terrain to cover 
in a helicopter, but we only flew the winter ranges, and that's where the animals are concentrated. And so what, what this survey uh, entails is uh, setting up a grid uh, on in different polygons. We break up the winter range in, into smaller polygons and then fly uh, typically about a quarter mile transect in each of those polygons and record every deer that we see. And, uh, and that's done, as I said, uh, in 2018, it took us uh, over 100 hours uh, to do that. It took us uh, a little over two weeks with a few weather delays, but uh, quite an outlay of time and resources. And uh, we flew all the winter ranges. And uh, uh, we found out that uh, there were some of the polygons that uh, uh, in their next survey that we, that we may not want to fly just because the deer numbers uh, were very few or non-existent. So we can focus on our next survey uh, into some other areas, uh, perhaps. But uh, with that in mind, um, once we uh, conducted, completed the survey, um, and and on that, after we were done with the survey, we, we counted uh, physically, laid eyes on uh, about twenty-five thousand and three hundred mule deer. And so there's there's a a, a minor correction factor where you feel ninety percent confident uh, of that. And so that correction factor added about 3,000 deer uh, that very likely could have been missed. And so uh, that put the population uh, estimate right at about 29, between 29 and 30,000 deer. And so uh, uh, that's, that's a good feeling, you know, that, uh, that you're that, um, that you count that many deer because uh, there's a big difference to doing uh, a sightability survey, as I just described, and versus our annual uh, herd composition survey that we typically do from a helicopter every December, where we fly um, somewhat randomly, and we're only trying to achieve a sample. And so, for for example, uh, this is a, a good time to discuss what our sample uh, differences between our sample uh, on each December when we climb into helicopter versus uh, the effect of of a full blown total animal abundance survey. And so uh, if you look at the, the number of deer that we count in LaBarge and Big Piney in our December sample, just to try to get buck doe ratios, doe fawn ratios, we only classify anywhere from uh, 2,700 to 3,600 deer uh, over the la on average over the last uh, uh, 27, 28, 29 years. Well, um, if you look at what we counted in the sightability survey, we counted over 8,000 deer on that winter range, and that was after the bad winter. So our sample uh, is good to come up with our herd composition, which it means buck-doe ratios, doe-fawn ratios. But we only count about 25% of the deer that, that uh, are very likely there. So uh, uh, it's good to, to know that uh, for your listeners that when we come up with buck-doe ratios, that's just a sample of the population uh, that represents uh, the herd composition, buck doe ratios, doe fawn ratios. And so uh, that sample uh, is what we bring to the public every season setting process. And, and as a result, because of the special designation of this herd as special management, um, most years, especially away from uh, the effects of a severe winter, you know, we're, our buck doe ratios are in the, 
in the upper 30s or in the low 40s. In fact, uh, that big piney population, uh, which is where a major portion of the Grays River spends the winter, our buck doe ratio was 41 uh, per 100 uh, in December of 2019. So uh, that's, that's fairly substantial uh, percentage proportion of bucks uh, in the population that uh, that people will have the opportunity to observe, photograph, and and ultimately hunt. So uh, I think I think the the uh, those data points or those metrics uh, are key to describing uh, our management program uh, in the Wyoming range to the public. And so I think uh, uh, with the luxury of having high buck doe ratios, uh, which the public demands, also comes. The opportunity to, to check some some substantial buck deer, and I think uh, with the the antler morphology data set that we've been uh, collecting uh, for since 1988, 86, I think, uh, where we uh, measure the outside spread and and uh, document the number of points per antler. You know, we've uh, we've put to take to uh, uh, over 3,700 or 3,600. That's 3,600 buck deer in the Wyoming range. It's fairly substantial, and uh, and and I think that that data set is uh, is compelling. Uh, I think to to us as Wyoming range deer managers and describing the health of the herd. And uh, uh, we know that uh, uh, over the over time and in uh, most of the bucks, I should say, uh, about 37 uh, percent. Uh, of all the bucks that we've checked, um, uh, sport antler widths of 24 inches or better. I mean, that's, uh, to me, that's amazing. And, uh, and, uh, you know, there's a, also that 30 inch data point, uh, that, uh, is, seems to be the, the gold standard. And, uh, and, uh, you know, some years, uh, we'll, we'll check, uh, of our sample size of, of checked deer will, will be over 10%. And, uh, in fact, in, in uh, 2014, uh, I think 17% of, of all the bucks that we checked uh, were 30 inches or better. It's phenomenal to me. And uh, and so if you look at that, that 30 inch data point, uh, I ran into a data set uh, from the Kaibab where they uh, measured 8,700 buck deer uh, from 1936 to 1951. And uh, uh, the, per, the percentage of bucks, 24 inches, or better during that time period on the Kaibab was uh, was about 24%. So uh, Wyoming range is, is running right at 36 to 37%. And uh, the 30 inch data point has always been, uh, as I said a moment ago, the, the seems like the gold standard. And on the Kaibab, it runs about 6%. And, and in the Wyoming range, it, it runs right about uh, 4%. So it's, uh, fairly subjective you know that 30 inch uh, metric but uh, it's something you know that we like to share with the public and and uh, and have something to compare it with uh, uh, in this case uh, with the Kaibab population uh, back in the day 1936 to 1951. That's pretty amazing data set Gary. So when we talk about buck to doe ratios you know when I look at like an out-of-state hunter uh, from a hunter's perspective and sort of a big buck hunter's perspective, that's one data point I like to look at when I'm looking at units to hunt is I'm looking for a buck to doe ratio above like 35. Um, do you want to just quickly tell us why is that data set so important to managers throughout the West 
and what does it tell us? You know, as you're approaching a higher, you know, 30 plus, even up to 40, what does that tell you about the age class and the percentage of larger deer in your population? Yeah, that that's a good question. Um, so the, uh, I think uh, herd composition uh, has always been a, um, uh, a defining data point for all wildlife managers, deer managers, elk managers. It's, it's a metric that, that we as game managers really need to collect um, so that we have an understanding how our management programs are progressing and, and also that the public has an understanding of, of uh, how we're managing those populations for them. And, and as you described, well, whether that's a, that's a herd that they want to spend resources on to, to hunt. And uh, that buck doe ratio, bull cow ratio, however you want to describe it, is is a key piece of information to game managers. And so, what comes along with with all of that is is the age. And and I think uh, I think your your listeners understand that that <clears throat> the biology of antlers is and and does change uh, from year to year, uh, depending on winter severity, how those bucks come out of the winter, their nutrition uh, during the, uh, the antler production period. There are a lot of factors that grow into, go into uh, producing large antlered uh, ungulates. And, uh, and so uh, to give me and other wildlife managers an understanding of, of uh, uh, how big antlers can and do grow, uh, we, we really need to have an understanding of how old those animals are. And so, uh, you know, many of your uh, listeners perhaps have come through check stations or uh, been contacted in the field and requests made to, uh, to extract two of the middle incisors uh, on the lower jaw. And so we use uh, that data to, uh, to come up with uh, uh, sent to our lab and our lab ages those teeth uh, under a microscope using the cementum annuline method. And, excuse me, and that uh, that gives us a known age at the time of harvest. And uh, what we've been able to do is correlate uh, the age at time of harvest to uh, the antler uh, morphology that uh, that particular buck uh, grew that year. Uh, and so that's where we come up with some of the measurements um, and uh, and then the, uh, the points per antler. I should add, too, that in the Wyoming range, uh, over time, over these last uh, 30 years or more, uh, almost 80% of all the bucks that we check in the field, that's all throughout the herd and uh, uh, that the game managers check, uh, almost 80% are four-point or better, and fairly substantial uh, data point there. And more recently, uh, uh, certainly uh, out of the northern areas, Grays River, where a lot of people like to come after these these trophy class bucks, uh, it typically runs uh, well over 90% of all the bucks that we encounter uh, that are harvested are, are sporting at least four points on, on each one of both antlers. And so uh, those metrics uh, on antler morphology really, I think, not only enlightened uh, us as deer managers, but the public as well. And because, uh, you know, I think uh, there are some, you know, that, that uh, you know, have the opinion that uh, all the young bucks are, are being are taken, and, and of course that isn't the case at all. And uh, so, but what's also noteworthy is uh, the type of antlers uh, that 
uh, young bucks versus old bucks can grow. And uh, many people are surprised when I show them uh, some of the data that uh, that we have six, seven, eight-year-old buck deer, you know, that grow uh, 21 to 22-inch antlers, you know, and uh, um, a lot of conditions that go into that. And so, uh, but, you know, that's one year, and they may be, uh, depending on, on their nutrition, as I said, how well they come off the winter, you know, they may be uh, a slightly different antler morphology this succeeding year. So I think uh, that's why we try to collect as much data as we can each hunting season. So we have a data set to compare and evaluate. And more importantly, I think, is to really understand um, the ages of the buck deer that are out there in the Wyoming range. And so uh, they don't live too very long. And uh, I think uh, some of the oldest bucks that we've checked over the last 30 years are uh, not much older than 10 years old. And, and when you look at their teeth, you know, I often hear hunters tell me that, um, you know, they, they kill a heavy antlered buck that's just a forked horn, you know, and uh, and then you look at his teeth and, you know, all of its grinding surfaces are below the gum line. And of course, you know, that's going to affect uh, his antler growth and the amount of uh, bone that he produces uh, and the configuration of the antlers. And if he doesn't have any grinding surfaces uh, effective to uh, break down the cell uh, of the plant, and uh, extract the nutrients in it yeah it's uh he's not going to produce big antlers you know that like he would have when he was a a four or five or six year old seven year old buck where he, when his molars had still had some sharp edges to it so i think it, that's an important concept for for people to understand that uh um that there really are no um inferior bucks out there it's uh it's all related to, uh the nutrition and the condition of the doe um uh, at the time of, uh, of birth and uh, how she's able to provision that buck fawn uh, through its first six, seven months of life. That's really interesting. In your experience, Gary, what, what do you think the biggest contributor to antler growth is here in this range? I know in some areas, more dry, deserty ecosystems, you know, precipitation is obviously a big factor. Um, what? Would, yeah. would you say you've seen on, on is it is it uh, severity of winters or is it what would you say is the biggest contributor here? I think it's fat does, fat mamas, and uh, I think those that are um, uh, and Dr. Monty's work has has clearly shown that. I think uh, um, those the, those does uh, that are carrying uh, fetuses and, and come through the winter in great shape and are able to provision that fetus. Uh, while it's still in the uterus and then uh, once it gives birth and, and it's better if she comes in the winter uh, as fat as she can be as well which is what happened uh, in 2019 I think some of the the data some of the does that we were uh, measuring body fat on uh, in December was exceptional and uh, in fact several does that we measured uh, weighed uh, weighed over 200 pounds uh, most a uh, good number of the does off the Lavarge Big Piney Winter Range uh, uh, weighed uh, 180 pounds or more, several well over 200 pounds. So uh, a fat, healthy doe, uh, it gets a young uh, buck uh, off to a good start. And, uh, and I think once, uh, once that happens, then, uh, then that deer has the, uh, the initial start in life 
to uh, to produce large antlers, uh, providing nutrition is there, uh, provided they come through the winter in in decent shape. Uh, I just had somebody tell me uh, a few days ago that he saw a buck deer that um, was uh, well beyond its ears already and still growing horizontally. Uh, and that's amazing. It's the first week in June and it's putting out that kind oh, of yeah. uh, I mean, that's, a, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's phenomenal. And so that just tells me that that uh, that deer um, uh, was born uh, probably prior to 2017 during those good years and that uh, came off in the winter and, you know, in, in fairly decent shape. They, they really never come off in outstanding shape because these winter ranges are, are low elevation uh severely depleted and uh and so um they, they never come off in 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 outstanding shape but uh, they come off uh in in years where it's kind of open and uh uh and uh where temperatures have somewhat moderated uh, through the winter that enables them to survive and they get a good start uh, an early green up march and april uh, weather temperatures uh uh, moderate somewhat, and uh, they're able to uh, start putting out, uh, utilizing that that initial green up in late March and April, and that gives them a great head start on producing uh, large antlers. So, Gary, uh, we really appreciate your time. Um, we don't want to take all your, all your time tonight. Um, I could probably sit here and listen to you for hours because I learned so much. Um, but before we before we go, I do want to um, pick your brain a little bit about um, the antler point restrictions that were placed after um, 2017. Um, and specifically, that was to help keep um, those yearling bucks or younger deer, because as you mentioned previously, that we did lose a whole cohort during that year. Um, will you just touch base on that antler point restriction and what findings you're you're seeing through the check stations and the such? Oh, sure. Yeah. Thanks, yeah, Billy. And yeah, we had talked about that. And um, yeah, APRs are, are <laughs> to put it mildly, a hot button topic. I think uh, more more disagreements and debate have been generated by antler point restrictions over the last 50 years than probably about anything related to deer management or elk management. Um, but I do, I do want to give your listeners a little bit of history about APRs in the Wyoming range. And I really only want to and should speak to the Wyoming range because uh, if there's one thing that I've come to the conclusion of is that one size does not fit all. And so when, when, when folks say, well, we tried antler point restrictions, you know, in, in another state or another area of Wyoming and uh, uh, that may have, uh, been unique to those areas, and and but what I want to sort out now is is give uh, your listeners uh, an idea of of antler point restrictions in history in the Wyoming range. And so, uh, the best of, that that I could find in the files is that uh, I, I, even when I showed up here, many people had, had wanted to go to uh, antler point restrictions and keep them in place. Uh, typically, a four point hunt. And so I started digging into that data and how they came about uh, in places like the Hoback, the Grays River, Salt River, uh, that had a four-point hunt. And in fact, uh, there were four-point uh, APRs in place. And, and during that time period, 
from 1977 through 1988, I think a 12-year period, there were four-point seasons in place in the Grays River and the Hoback. But what I think uh, people forget or don't understand is that uh, through those 12 years, there was never, and let me repeat that, there was never an entire deer season that ran a four-point hunt the entire season. There was always a combination of an any deer season, an antler deer season, and a four-point season. And uh, on top of that, uh, if you look at the, the surrounding areas where these deer, for example, these bucks in Grays River uh, would migrate to spend the winter, which was along the east slope of the Wyoming Range and through Cokeville and south to Evanston, uh, back in during that 12-year period, those seasons ran until October 31st. So any deer, any buck deer that people thought could have been saved uh, by a four-point season could, in fact, have been uh, legally killed uh, once they hit those other hunt areas because uh, they typically did not have that four-point hunt. Uh, one thing I will qualify, there was only one year in those 12 years, one year, and that was 1985, when uh, the entire deer season in the Grays River and Hoback uh, was a four-point hunt. And of those remaining 11 years, as I just described, there was never an entire deer hunt with a four-point. It was a combination in succeeding dates of any deer, four-point, uh, antler deer only. So I hope that clarifies some things uh, with the public. And uh, uh, n now more recently, with the uh, with the, the advent of the three-point hunt, the Game and Fish Commission uh, goes to great lengths to, to consider uh, public sentiment. And uh, following that winter of 2017, the public uh, was calling for uh, some effort by the Game and Fish Commission and Department to address uh, the losses that we observe on the winter range. And of course, uh, in order, uh, what the Commission and Department chose to do uh, was to respond to public sentiment uh, with a three-point hunt. And we uh, agreed that uh, we would run the three-point hunt for three years uh, because one thing I really want to convey to your to your listeners is that, um, and, and this is where the whole notion of antler point restrictions get murky and muddied and very, very controversial. Uh, antler point restrictions do not, repeat, do not lead uh, to population increase. Population increase occurs uh, when survival exceeds death rate. And so that means uh, fawns have to be born and survive and, and be recruited in the population in successive years. That's how you promote population increase, uh, not with antler point restrictions. And the luxury we have in the Wyoming range is that it's so rugged and difficult to get around in. And uh, I think that has been a key component of it um, in, in, in in having our buck doe ratios that typically uh, are observed in the high 30s and in the low 40s. And so the idea of a three-point hunt uh, following a 2017 winter was to protect um, uh, the yearling cohort of buck deer. And so naturally, uh, those fawns that were born in 27, 
2016, most of them perished during that winter. So there were very few uh, yearling bucks uh, to be that were in the population anyhow uh, during the 2017 winter. But uh, we, we made the commitment we're going to try to protect those and then allow that antler point restriction uh, to persist uh, for two more years in, through 2019. And uh, the other notion is, is that antler point restrictions, especially in the Wyoming range, uh, do not produce big bucks. Uh, it's just proven. The data supports it. The, we have 30 years of data um, in, in buck doe ratios and in the whole realm of, of metrics associated with male deer in the Wyoming range that clearly show that antler point restrictions do not produce big bucks. Um, we don't need antler point restrictions because we already have big bucks. And uh, so APRs um, uh, don't contribute in that respect. But um, public sentiment uh, is important uh, to us uh, in the Department and Game and Fish Commission, and, and we wanted to, to proceed with that, with, with that restriction. And then what's noteworthy, I think, in, in, in how we think of uh, APRs, especially the three point, uh, is that in the Wyoming range, uh, we see um, close to 90% of all two-year-old bucks, which is phenomenal to me. Uh, 90% about, uh, about that um, of two-year-old uh, buck deer are three-point deer, and many of them are actually uh, sporting four points on at least one antler. So uh, the ability to grow antlers in the Wyoming range is, is certainly noteworthy. The other notion of that I want to try to allay uh, and and assure your listeners is that uh, because of our high buckdo ratios in the Wyoming range and the quality of buck, um, however you decide, however you define quality, and I think our data sets do that. Uh, however you define quality in the Wyoming range is that uh, to protect yearling bucks, uh, so few over the last 25 years are taken because there's such a high preponderance of these um, four-point, uh, three-point buck deer on the landscape, a high percentage, as I described in my earlier comments on the data that we've collected with um, uh, almost 80% of all buck deer, 3,600 buck deer are, are four-point or better. So the people come to Wyoming range not to kill yearling bucks, they come to kill uh, and seek out these trophy class buck deer. And so that's why I think we can assure uh, and allay any concerns of your listeners that the yearling buck cohort uh, is not and has never been impacted or overexploited by hunters in the Wyoming range just because uh, they don't come to the Wyoming range to kill yearlings. Now, that isn't to say that uh, yearling bucks are not taken. They are. In fact, uh, um, there are some years when the population is at some of its highest points that we've observed where uh, yearling bucks uh, comprise a, a little bit higher percentage than they normally do. But if you look at all the hunters in the Wyoming range, uh, typically yearling bucks comprise uh, less than 20% of our annual field checks. So, um, you know, all the bucks that we check, yearling bucks comprise such a very, very low percentage, even in in uh, those years when the population is in, in an uh, uptick. Uh, and so I think 
that uh, was a key point that I'm, I'm glad you brought up, Billy, and, and that I hope we can uh, assure your listeners of that uh, that um, yearling bucks, uh, those people that are concerned about uh, yearling bucks and, and their ability to grow into trophy class buck deer, uh, have really never been impacted uh, in this uh, in this. Uh, highly sought after deer population where there's so much interest in it. Thank you for that explanation. Um, we did reach out on social media just to, to ask some questions. Most of the questions that, that people wanted to know are in regards to the collared buck studies. I know that we talked about this previously to recording this podcast. Would you just go through um, w- your explanation with the collared buck studies, just to the listeners of what you told me prior to this podcast? Oh, sure, Billy. Yeah, thank you. Um, So one of the, uh, going back to the Wyoming Range uh, Research Project, um, we we felt that uh, back in the day when we started it, uh, it seems like back in the day, it's been been a great study initiated in in 2013. Uh, We felt that uh, a key metric that we were so desperately lacking uh, was uh, the survival of newborn fawns. And so we addressed that concern in 2015. That was our first uh, June uh, of the project uh, that we were able to initiate uh, the fawn collaring program. And uh, it's been in place uh, for the last five years. And uh, as, as the project progressed, uh, there, was, there, was all, there was always some thinking uh, much of our discussion, based on much of our discussion uh, this evening, about here we have this this uh, what many people call uh, an iconic mule deer population with the type of buck that uh, lives in the population that people are seeking to photograph, observe the hunt, uh, and we really don't know anything about them. And uh, and so we were fortunate enough with the commission support, Game Fish Commission support. Um, to initiate another phase of the Wyoming Range Mule Deer Project, and that was uh, initiated in December of 2018. And it was in December of 18 that uh, we took the the step to begin radio collaring buck deer on uh, the northern and southern winter ranges. And uh, we we caught uh, and collared buck deer with expandable collars uh, in December of 2018. Uh, in between Cokeville and Evanston, and then in January of 2019 on the Labarge Winter Ranges. And uh, we continued uh, that effort again in uh, uh, December of last year and again in uh, January of 2020. Um, I'm not totally, uh, uh, I don't want to give any bad information, uh, but I believe currently we have uh, between uh, 25 and 30 buck deer that are on the air uh, alive with uh, active radio collars. And uh, what was noteworthy, I think, about last year, um, going into the 2019 hunt, uh, we uh, we had about that number, I think, about 27 bucks collared of all different age classes and antler configurations. We had trophy class bucks collared, but we also had yearling bucks collared as well. And uh, uh, of those deer, and I'm going to say, just for discussion's sake, uh, about 25 to 27 bucks on the year 
two of those bucks were harvested uh, by Wyoming hunters. And then the third buck was harvested by an Idaho hunter uh, after I believe our, our season had closed. And that buck was on his uh, movement back to uh, Wyoming winter range, which is legally harvested in the southeast corner of Idaho. So um, as far as the data goes, um, uh, Kevin, Dr. Montes, and his associates, graduate students, are uh, have not uh, looked at that data in, in any great detail yet. We're still collecting it. They're still collecting it, and it'll be analyzed. And I can assure your listeners in great depth because um, that is some of the information that uh, the Game and Fish Department has been really interested in, how buck deer uh, respond to hunting pressure. Uh, how buck deer um, migrate from the winter ranges to the summer ranges are those are corridors or uh, movement corridors similar to uh, doe deer are they separate uh, do they leave the winter ranges at different times compared to uh, the female component of the population uh, what do they eat um, when do they begin their migrations um, uh, back to winter ranges you know and, and how uh, all things that that we're going to be keen on uh, and are keen on as game and fish deer managers to ensure that we do not adversely uh, affect uh, the male component with uh, with you know seasons that uh, and that's what we've been trying to do for for well over 20 years um, is not hunt these bucks during when they're vulnerable during their migratory period uh, or during the rut or when they're on the winter range, because I think we realize as deer managers that these trophy class buck deer are every bit as important to the state of Wyoming and, and to uh, the public of Wyoming uh, when people are able to see them and photograph them on the winter ranges as they are when they're trying to, uh, to uh, uh, hunt them. Uh, in September and early October. So um, as long as we uh, can persist uh, with, with that concept, in my view, of ensuring that hunts uh, don't uh, lead into the migration or about the elk season when there's an influx of elk hunters in, in mid-October, or certainly uh, not hunt these bucks when, when they're on, their, on the winter ranges during the, uh, or during the rut. Uh, this population of trophy class buck deer, in my view, will persist. So that's where uh, that's that's the the short answer. Kind of got long winded on on an explanation of where we at with evaluating uh, the the buck movement data. That that will be forthcoming, and and I want to make assure you and your listeners that uh, uh, when we get to the point where where Dr. Montes and, and his students are analyzing that data will produce uh, uh, updates like many of your listeners have seen uh, since the inception of the Wyoming Range Project. So we'll make that data available. Uh, I'm not sure that we're going to produce it uh, with a microscope of, of where the where the bucks uh, live, but uh, uh, we'll certainly make uh, a reasonable effort to uh, depict the movements uh, of these animals and, and how they respond to their environment during different times of the year. In conclusion, Gary, um, what can we as sportsmen 
that have an interest in mule deer, how can we become involved? And then if you just leave with any um, concluding comments or um, also how our listeners or anyone out there can get a hold of you if they have sp specific questions. Sure. I think, uh, you know, I, I think it, it's, to me, it's one of the, one of the fundamental issues as hunters and sportsmen and women on what we can do uh, to conserve the, uh, the species that are of in great interest to us. And uh, I think one of the things that, uh, that really resonates with me is, is how uh, knowledgeable and educated uh, and, and more informed that, that sportsmen and women are becoming, especially when they have the luxury of, of reviewing data sets that we've been able to collect over the last 30 years in the Wyoming range and access to uh, reports and data sets like Dr. Monteith and his crew have been collecting. I think that can only be a good and great thing to to keep our, our constituents and, and sportsmen and women conservationists informed of some of the complexities uh, associated with um, mule deer and their environment and certainly uh, management aspects of that. So uh, that would be probably one of the first things is, is to encourage continued education and being um, informed of, of the issues as much as possible. And uh, in other ways, I think, is to certainly uh, be active proponents in conservation groups, like, for example, the uh, Muley Fanatic Foundation has been a, a leader in mule deer ecology uh, since their inception. And uh, there is nothing but good and great things to be said about that organization and, and their leaders, um, uh, Josh and Joey, and, and what they've contributed uh, to uh, better understanding mule deer, uh, not only in Wyoming, but uh, uh, throughout the Intermountain West. They've, uh, they've extended their reach uh, into to many other states, and they've done uh, uh, wonderful things for mule deer. So uh, being an active member and contributing to conservation groups such as them um, uh, and other groups as well, uh, it, it goes a long ways, you know, and of course, you know, we're talking about financial uh, contributions in, in that regard, because the, the Muley Fanatic Foundation, for example, has, uh, has really uh, put forth a, a lot of funding for uh, the Wyoming Range Research and, and uh, other research projects, and as well as habitat projects as well. Um, uh, in Wyoming and elsewhere. I think it's important. Recent developments has been uh, uh, with the Wildlife uh, Crossing Structures Initiative and, and uh, you know, minimizing those sorts of uh, wildlife vehicle collisions. And so the, uh, the state of Wyoming, YDOT, come up with a license plate uh, where you can contribute uh, by a, a a vanity plate that has the, the buck mule deer on it and knowing that that a, a major portion of that money for that license plate is going to be uh, devoted towards uh, uh, the development and construction of, of uh, uh, for example, fencing projects along highways and, and crossing structures to allow animals uh, of, of all species to negotiate the roadways in Wyoming. And so I think that's a, that's a key point. I think the uh, it also keeps uh, 
impact these migration corridors that have been uh, established uh, over hundreds, if not thousands of years. It keeps intact those and minimizes that uh, potential for uh, uh, collision with a vehicle um, that could jeopardize these movement corridors and migration corridors over time. And so I think those are some of the some of the uh, funding aspect or where you can contribute financially. I think try to be as active as you can as a volunteer. I know uh, with this COVID outbreak, um, it's kind of put a damper on the ability to volunteer in different projects, but um, that's been uh, a key component of, of certainly the Wyoming Range research. And, and if you look at all the research that the Game and Fish Department has done in the state of Wyoming, it's uh, over the last 15, 20, 25 years, it's all been based on, or longer for that matter, it's all been based on public involvement. And so there, there are ample opportunities for the public to volunteer their time uh, when conditions uh, abate with, uh, with COVID. I think, uh, I think that will be a key component of it all. Um, you know, certainly conservation groups uh, are, are all good things, great things to be involved in uh, uh, with people of like minds. And I think that can go a long way to, to uh, uh, from the political perspective, uh, to an yeah, ability to uh, to institute change through legislation, perhaps, um, and, and other matters. I think uh, uh, the, the the cadre of people that came together to work with uh, the state of Wyoming, Governor Gordon, uh, has been exceptional in in uh, developing the the migration initiative and. Uh, um, protecting these migration corridors and bringing uh, the importance of those corridors to light to uh, the people of Wyoming. So there's a few things I think, um, uh, certainly not all encompassing, but uh, uh, I think they they go a long ways to uh, ensuring that uh, we have mule deer, uh, especially on the landscape for a long, long time into the future. And so I think, those are some of the things that come to the top of my uh, top of my head. I think in suggestions on how the public can can become involved in, and uh, maintain an active role in in the management of not only mule deer but uh, other species that they might be interested in. Um, one thing too, I think uh, it's important if uh, certainly uh, I want to uh, offer a. Uh, an avenue to any of your listeners uh, who are interested in in uh, the Wyoming range herd or, or any other species in western Wyoming that uh, they'd like information on. I think uh, um, you can contact uh, Billy or Brad or myself or, or Dr. Kevin Monteith uh, personally. You know, he's, uh, uh, he's accessible and can be reached at the University of Wyoming uh, should you want to uh, delve into the research that he's conducted uh, during his career and certainly uh, uh, the, uh, the updates and the reports that he and his uh, graduate students have generated uh, since 2013, the inception of the Wyoming Range Research. Well, we sure appreciate your time, Gary. We appreciate all you do for this iconic herd and for your years of service. Um, it's always a delight to talk to you. 
I know that over the years of I've spent time listening and I've learned a lot of about mule deer ecology as well as the mule deer in general and most of it comes to you so I really appreciate that. Um, well, Brad, do you have anything else that you'd like to add? Uh, Gary, just want to add my two cents of thank you. I know you're a busy man and we appreciate you taking the time. This has been a conversation that uh, you know we run into each other a couple times a year usually and it's always a joy to I always have questions for you uh, regarding the deer and you're always very willing to answer those. And, and I just, you know, I think uh, being informed on the issues and understandings of what happens with each, you know, every herd's different and we'll have listeners listen to this from across the nation that are hunting deer in different States. And then those that have particular interest in the Wyoming range deer. And so, you know, I think as, as a, uh, that's something we need to take upon ourselves is to be as informed as we can um, and make educated decisions. And you know, I, I get a lot of people in and out of my retail shop here in Afton that have different uh, opinions and different thoughts. And, and I have a lot of conversations regarding deer management and, and uh, it's interesting to kind of see those different perspectives. Um, I guess, Gary, my only question for you would be, you know, what's the next five to 10 years look like? Uh, this is what it's, a lot of people kind of want to know. Are you optimistic about the Wyoming range herd? Just short answer. What do you, how do you feel about the next uh, five to 10 years in the future? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a, it's a fair question. I think, uh, I think the, you know, the, the history of the herd is, is a testament to, to what the, the future looks like, uh, I, I hope I sincerely hope that sorry, your listeners uh, have a uh, have that innate understanding of the cyclic nature of mule deer populations in West Central and Southwestern Wyoming and in other places in the Inner Mountain West. I think um, we had, as I said earlier, uh, a run of five consecutive years following the, the 2011 winter where uh, the mule deer hunting was in my view, uh, exceptional. And, and that was borne out with uh, the hunter satisfaction surveys. We also had a, a, a period back in, um, in, in the 2000s, uh, the middle 2000s, where, uh, again, you know, the, the, the winners were generous to our deer population and, and, and they can, the deer can and, and will respond uh, to light winners. And, uh, and I think, you know, there's some other issues associated with that droughty uh, winters and, and, you know, the effects over the long term. But but still, uh, um, when it comes to overwinter survival, if if they are given the opportunity or provided the opportunity uh, through through relatively light winters, uh, by that I mean with, uh, you know, minimal snowfall, especially on the big winter ranges, the big winter ranges being LaBarge, Big Piney, Daniel, and Cokeville South there. To Evanston, uh, this population responds to, it. and I think there's ample evidence uh, to suggest that and indicate that it will. So, um, I, I guess I, I'm I'm optimistic, but I'm also a realist that uh, you know that that every on average every three years, um, this population is subject to a, a fairly substantial winter mortality event, and uh, uh, but. On the other hand, uh, if we have four to five consecutive years of, of light winters, high overwinter survival, uh, 
this population is going to respond, and and I know it will respond because that's the history of it, and uh, and so I think uh, um, I think it, it's good to be optimistic, but but I think you know you have to be realistic as well, and uh, and and I think that's borne out that realism is borne out in the data, and I think if if uh, the public uh, has that understanding uh, of the data that's been collected. Uh, in this herd for the last 30 to 35 years, uh, I think uh, they can they can understand uh, what the potentials are, both uh, from a winter perspective and then also from uh, 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 producing trophy class buck deer. You know, and uh, I think that's a, a key component of it all. And uh, you know, I think I think what's been another aspect that's been uh, a really rewarding experience for me is uh, uh, certainly being in, in this district as long as I have, but um, the uh, unprecedented support and encouragement uh, that we received from uh, Game and Fish Commission's past and present, and certainly from uh, our administrators and uh, uh, in the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. And I think w- without uh, their support through the encouragement and <clears throat> and the uh, the allocation of funds to do this kind of work. I think uh, you know we'd be having uh, the the grand de- debate still on uh, without much data um, to to go by. And so um, certainly uh, people like myself and my colleagues uh, in the Wyoming range um, really owe. A great deal of, of gratitude and thanks to uh, the Game and Fish Commission and uh, certainly our uh, wildlife administrators uh, through all echelons of the Game and Fish Department uh, make this kind of work possible. And I guess uh, not to be, not to let, um, not to uh, overstep, certainly give uh, the public the support um, and uh, the encouragement and the thanks uh, that this that this department, this agency, uh, relies on, you know, the support and the encouragement of, of the uh, the general and the hunting public uh, to make the game and fish department uh, a really successful agency. And I think uh, um, certainly my my gratitude to you, Brad and Billy, and and, and the many hundreds and thousands of sportsmen and women out there who have that understanding and appreciation for the wildlife of Wyoming and the Wyoming range deer herd. Yeah, perfect answer. Thank you, Gary. And once again, we can't can't tell you enough how appreciative we are for, of you to take your time out of your schedule to, to get with us tonight and record this podcast. I think this is going to be a very valuable, you know, it's a valuable time for our listeners and and uh, just thank you again we really appreciate it mm, thank you yeah thanks gary yeah thank you all you're listening to the hunt the high country